This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. Season one features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi Hendrix. The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakravorty. And I'm Farrah Dowdy. And today we are taking another look at blood. Blood work, yes. specifically. Blood work, specifically. We got a chance to go see Holly Tucker, who is an associate professor at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, speak at the Decatur Book Festival about her new book called Blood Work, A Tale of Medicine and Murder in the Scientific Revolution. And Holly's book covers the first blood transfusion, the first human blood transfusion performed by a man named Jean-Baptiste Denis in France in, believe it or not, the 1600s. And she talks a little bit in this book about how his experiments were shut down and why and the murder mystery surrounding this whole thing. So in a part one of our interview with Holly Tucker, we talked a little bit with her about the history of blood circulation and blood transfusion just to get a little bit of background to this story. How See where they were coming from. Yeah. How did they even get to this point where they were doing blood transfusions in the 1600s? And so she talked to us a little bit about that and people's previous notions about blood and the rivalry between England and France and getting to do the first blood transfusion and then the experiments themselves. Well, in the rivalry between the Paris elite and the more upstart rural doctor Denis. And that's kind of the center of the story. Denis personal experiments in blood transfusions. And as Holly mentioned in the earlier interview, Denis ultimately gets himself into trouble by transfusing a madman. It's a publicity ploy, essentially. He wants to do a successful transfusion on essentially the most famous man in Paris, and he hopes that that way he'll make a name for himself. The guy doesn't die immediately, but he does eventually, and Denis goes in on murder charges. Denis is eventually acquitted for this crime, but it's clear that the patient had been murdered, and just not by him. Not by a blood transfusion either. No, there were other people involved and poison. Arsenic, specifically. So 
that part of the interview had a lot to do with the heart of the book, the story. This part of the interview has a lot more to do with the sort of sleuth aspect. Holly's research, not only into the murder, because she did, after all, solve a cold case from the 1600s, but about the ins and outs of 17th century life in Paris. That was one of the most fascinating parts about the book to me, how much medieval Paris was recreated. Yeah, it really reads like a novel, even though it's a work of nonfiction. She'll talk about that. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But we really wanted to find out how she went about putting this together. So that's what we're going to cover in this episode. So obviously, our first question for Holly really was that, how she put the book together. In the last interview, she mentioned that she suspected that a fear of hybrid species was the root of the murder. People were really afraid that transfusing animal blood into humans might affect their humanity. It might turn them into something else, some sort of hybrid monster. So since she suspected that fear, we wanted to know where she started. How did she start off looking for the murderers with just that little inkling? Here's what she had to say. Well, first I have to tell you is when I first proposed the book to my editor, I had a real sense. I knew who it was. I knew who it was. And in fact, the entire proposal was around one person because I knew that this person who was part of the medical elite was deeply afraid of of any type of scientific tinkering with human human and animal species barriers. So I spent a couple of years on the trail of my main suspect and spent several months in Paris going through the archives of the French Academy of Sciences, spending time in the archives of the medical library there. And uh, unfortunately, I could not find anything that would allow me to say with any certitude that he had done it. I then made a list of other potential suspects and other potential motives, went back to France, dug around, and I couldn't find anything there. And I started to despair because I essentially had a murder. I essentially had uh, suspects, but I, I couldn't figure out who did it. And I was just ready to give up when, in fact, I was getting the courage to contact my editor to say, look, I, I think this is a non-starter, this after a couple of years of work. And I was going through some, I was getting ready actually to put away my research notes. And I'm really meticulous about uh, cat- cataloging all of my research notes and and when I archive things, I know exactly, I guess I'm a historian, so I do this. I have everything well archived and well documented. So I was doing inventories of my research notes. And I came across this envelope that had a French postmark on it. And uh, I said, hmm, I wonder what this is. And I opened it up and I was like, oh, this looks vaguely familiar. It, they were copies of manuscripts, photocop- well, uh, photographic reproductions of manuscripts and, and, and microfilms. It's like, oh, yeah, this was about, you know, nine months ago when I was in France. As it often happens for researchers, you spend time in the archives and the last few days are crazy because there are so many other things that you need to look at that you know you're not going to have time. And you end up spending a fortune in reproduction expenses and working particularly with French libraries. You will get those reproductions back after six weeks, sometimes three months. And what always happens is the envelopes arrive right when you're in the thick of the semester and you don't have time to go through it. And so I put it on a pile of, of research notes 
And I'm flipping through, it's taking, again, inventorying this, and I come across a letter that I hadn't seen, but I must have noticed in the, in the catalogs from a lawyer at court, specifically saying, Jean-Baptiste Denis, the transfusionist, has every reason to fear for his life. Person A and person B know what they've been doing, know how dangerous they are, and they should be ashamed of themselves, and transfusion should be allowed to continue. It was the first time I had different names that had not been on my suspect list. So what is this? Um, And essentially, the lawyer was saying, I shouldn't be writing this, but I, I have to write this. So I had two names that sent me back to France again. It's a rough life <laughs> transiting back and forth from France for research. But now that I have the names, it was, it was interesting because these two suspects had written so much about their feelings on blood transfusion. And I'd looked at those before, but I hadn't had reason to look at other letters, other treatises they'd written. And sure enough, once I got into their treatises, in one case, most definitely, there's an admission of having killed Denise's patient for the very reasons that I brought forth is that they were they were horrified by the idea that the human species could be in danger. And in at least one of the two cases, it was considered to be this this noble religious cause is that the person had been called on by God to um, avenge. Um, the sanctity of hu- of human life. And it was interesting to me. I thought, how in the world did I miss this? One is I didn't have their names now that I had their names. But it also occurs to me is that um, vigilantes are rarely shy, right? So they were sitting out in the open. It just took a lot of a lot of research to be able to get to the documents that allowed me to say with with certainty who had been involved. The funny thing is, you know, when you, when you do a project like this, your family members live with it for years too. <laughs> and, uh, my husband had seen me be excited about this project and then sort of fall into the pit of despair is that, you know, I, I can't figure out who did it and it's over. There goes, you know, my, my research. I've spent, you know, I've wasted all this time. And out of, he could tell something was up, um, that I was back into the flow of it. And I don't think he was quite ready for this phone call though. I, I just knew I, I looked at all of the pieces of data that I had. I connected the dots probably 15 different times and each time the, the outcome was the same. And it was more that I could, than I could, you know, handle sitting there in my, in, in my study at home. And so I was like, forget it. I'm just going to go to the gym and I'm going to work out. And I uh, take my phone with me. I get in the car. And I call my husband and the minute he picks up the phone, I start to cry. Isn't this stupid? I start to cry. And he goes, are you all right? Are you all right? And I was like, I did it. I found him. I found him. I found the murderers. <laughs> because you, you know, you put your heart and soul into this and he goes, you did. And, and I started telling, he goes, Oh my God, this is amazing. And then he goes, wait, 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 wait. You, you realize that you just solved like a 350 year old cold case, don't you? And, and we started to laugh because there was both an excitement of, you know, coming to this point in research and then figuring out that I was as excited of, of having that by the fact that I'd solved this cold case as I, you know, as the people on, on any number of the TV shows, you know, have, but it was, these people had been dead for over 350 years, but that's what makes historical research so, um, so exciting and rewarding. I think. So we can see that this was a long, arduous process of thinking she knew who it was, 
rejecting that idea and then having to search for the actual killers. And almost having to give up. And almost giving up. So we were really curious, how long did she work on this book? And what was her research process for it? And she told us a little bit about that here. Probably three or four years of research, for sure. The writing uh, went pretty quickly, uh, about 15 months of writing. And that was intense writing where it was all, uh, page and quota based. Um, you know, basically doing what all good writers say you need to do is, is put your bottom in the chair and work every day. And that's been for me the, the key to being productive is making sure that every day I produce something, even if it's not very good. And I think the book wrote itself for, for, an academic writing these types of books, 15 months seems obscenely short. Um, but for me, once I had spent so much time on the research and actually had spent so much time getting, trying to get myself in the minds of the people I was going to be talking about, it was really a matter of transcribing what I had researched and also the images that I had collected that were now living in my head and putting it on the page. So it it wrote itself pretty quickly. As I mentioned earlier, this book really reads like a work of fiction. There are so many details about people's thoughts and memories, how they feel about certain things. So we wanted to know, how did Holly incorporate them and do so in a way that you're still able to call this a work of nonfiction? And here's what she had to say. You know, that's the trick. There's one rule in nonfiction is that it has to be true. <laughs> and um and things that are put in quotes have to be documented. So you can't put words in somebody's mouth. And I think that for me really trying to get at what the the streets of Paris sounded like and looked like and worse smelled like um was important for me to try to get it right and how how I did that is at first, you know, I have the advantages. I've been doing this as a career for a very long time. Um, I've been working in 17th and 18th century studies as an academic, you know, for nearly 15 years. So, so much of this stuff relies on, you know, the little scraps and bits and pieces that I've, I've been able to pull together over time in my research and my teaching. But I realized that that wasn't going to be enough. In fact, this is probably the hardest. I've written a couple of books. This is the hardest book I've ever written. I've had, I've had some people, um, particularly academics say, Oh, well, it reads like fiction. And I say, you have no idea how hard it was to write. Really? I don't, I can't, I can't see that <laughs> because it's, it's, you know, the, the, there's a way of writing academic prose, which is very different than writing, um, prose for a wider readership. And what is not visible to some is just the deep amount of research I had to do. In fact, it, it laps anything I would have done for an academic book because I actually had to care what, um, the carriages look like. In fact, I, the opening scene in which the transfusionist is moving from the left bank to the right bank, I had that written and I was really the, the whole goal of that opening scene is to be able to show readers what 17th century Paris would have looked like so that it's a transition into what will later become the, 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 the main plot lines of the book. I realized that I'd written that assuming that there were windows in the carriage. And, uh, it's very different than having windows and if there are curtains. 
And so I had to step back. I was like, how do I know that there are windows in the carriage? And there, there goes another four days of research, making sure that you know when windows came in and when curtains were still there. Other details, um, were, for example, the street lighting. In 1667, the first police chief of Paris, Nicolas de la Reine, um, is called on by Louis XIV to basically root out organized crime. And, uh, Paris was the crime capital of Europe in 1667. First thing that Nicolas de Reigny does, and that's why we call Paris the city of light, um, he lights the streets of Paris. And that will change things for me about how I'm able to describe people in Paris, right? Um, the first blood human, let's see, the transfusion on Mourois was done in the evening. Well, it's going to matter what time in the evening it is. It's also going to matter, is it before the police chief begins lighting the streets or after, right? And how you imagine that space will change by the smallest of details. So for all of these different moments of visceral detailing, I I can't even begin to tell you the amount of of work that goes into really making sure you've got the details right. So for me, the little details of the book, the sights and the sounds, and I mean, even sometimes the smells made it really tactile. It made it kind of come alive. And it helped me in that it juxtaposed the horrors of the experiments, you know, these awful things happening to animals, dogs and sheep and people sometimes helped me juxtapose that with the daily horrors that were taking place on the streets of Paris. But I wanted to just know, how did Holly overlay a long gone medieval Paris with the one of today. You know, she does a lot of comparing to uh, where a building is now. If you are in Paris and you're standing at this well-known landmark, look across the river and here is a building where something happened in blood work. I wanted to know how she reconstructed the city and why did she think it was important to do so? And this is what she said. I'd love to imagine all of the lives and daily dramas that took place both in the streets in which I'm standing and then also in the, in the buildings where, where I, I work and, and also stay. And, um, you know, we have to be careful not to assume that the Paris of today looked exactly, even just the way the streets were laid out, um, looked like it did then. You mentioned the Grand Châtelet, which was the, uh, main prison of Paris. And also to the, the police headquarters. That's gone. In fact, I, I can't even tell you how sad I am that it was destroyed in the 19th century because I would really love to be able to walk in that space and take a look at it. And one of the ways that you can, you can sort of reconstruct it is one is, is seeing traces when you're in Paris because it's one of the most interesting historical cities. But overlaying um, modern Paris with old 17th century maps. And what was really exciting to me is it, the Montmartre estate, which is in the Marais, which is in the nicest, at the, in the 17th century and still is today, one of the nicest areas of Paris with these huge residential um, state estates. I had spent a lot of time um, looking at old maps because I needed to get a sense of what those spaces would have looked like how Denis would have arrived to the Montmartre state, how, where he would have, where the stairs would have been, would it have been a grand staircase or a side staircase. And I had, you know, some period pictures from 
the early 19th century, I'm sorry, early 20th century, that I could sort of see how it was a hundred years ago. I had old maps. I also had, um, accounts of people who had had dinner, um, at Momor's home. And for me, it was so exciting. I'd almost finished the book. So the draft was done and I was going back to Paris to, to do, to trick out some of other, to sort of snuff out some missing links that I needed to do. And I literally, some of these estates, you're walking through Paris and the doors are huge and you can't get in, right? They're locked or they have some sort of, you know, digital code thing. And this was still a private home, the Momor estate. I stood for an hour in front of the Momor estate, hoping that somebody would open the door and let me in. And finally, I snuck in, and I'm standing in the the large. They call it the Cour d'Honneur, the uh, Court of Honor, which is where where horses and carriages would enter, the people would descend, and then they would go through a uh, porte cochere into the private courtyard. And I'm standing in the in the uh, courtyard of honor, and I started my eye. You're going to think all I do is cry when I write, but my eyes started to water. And the um, superintendent of the building came out and said, "Madame, can I help you?" And I said, oh, yes. And I just started to gush. Do you know <laughs> that in 1667, there were the first human blood transfusions and they happened up there? And then the, the madman Mourois, they, they, they would have transferred him up to the servants' quarters, which would likely would have been up there. And he looked at me very strangely. And we ended up spending just this lovely afternoon. Um, the superintendent gave me access into different parts of the building that I would normally not have been able to see. And it was delicious for me because it, through those early documents that I've been using, I was pretty dead on. Um, it was delicious and, and surprising and gratifying to know that, you know, how you construct things narratively and also imaginatively actually um, was on target. You know, if I was catapulted back into the 17th century, would it look exactly the way that I described it? Probably not. But, you know, we don't even know what, we can't even reconstruct what happened to us all yesterday, right? But I think I got pretty close. So Holly's stories about sneaking into places to find details definitely charmed and amused us a great deal. But we have to take a kind of serious turn with the questions at this point to get a little bit more information about the continued history of blood transfusions, I guess. After Denise's experiments and blood transfusions were shut down in the 1600s, they didn't start back up again until the 1800s. So we wanted to know how did we get to where we are now with blood transfusions? How did people's attitudes change enough to make this possible? And here's what she had to say. Now, that's a really hard question because um, I'm I'm really not sure. Something happened in the 19th century and that's when blood transfusions picked back up in 1818. James Blundell, a, an English obstetrician notices that his patients are hemorrhaging often and sometimes to death. And it's not clear whether he was aware of these early blood transfusions or not. It's worth noting, of course, that after the Genie case, blood transfusion was banned in France and basically just fell off the, uh, scientific radar for at least 150 years, and Blundell takes it back up. It's not clear that he's aware of these early, the history of the early blood transfusions, but he speculates that, you know, maybe we could put blood into these hemorrhaging mothers. And like Denis, he actually begins with animal trials. In fact, in this case, he injects an animal with human blood. 
And for whatever reason, the animal dies immediately. And that causes Blundell to think, hmm, maybe animal to human transfusions may not be the way to go. Maybe human to human transfusion should, should be what I need to be doing. He doesn't perform a lot of them. Um, and had a success rate of less than 40%. So there were a lot of deaths involved. But Blendell's work actually sets off a long line, uh, another long line of questioning about, you know, is this something we can do? And so in the decades that follow, people are interested in, okay, why is blood coagulating? Is there a way we can get it to stop coagulating? Because that seems to be the problem. Um, then in 1901, Carl Landsteiner does a very simple, exquisitely simple experiment in which he takes blood samples from different colleagues in his lab and puts the blood together and starts to see that blood coagulates with some pairings and not others, and then creates um, blood groups, blood types, right? He, he, he didn't need to have an advanced degree in immunology to do this, as he just comes up on this experiment. Why in the 19th century? We can't be sure. I, I truly cannot be sure. I think in the 17th century, it's easy to say that William Harvey's discovery of blood cir- circulation got everybody thinking about blood. But the 19th century itself is the moment where big things happen. Anesthesia, antisepsis, germ theory. And I, and I do have to imagine that blood transfusion, that the renaissance of thinking about blood transfusion in the 19th century is part of that larger renaissance of scientific thinking overall. So blood transfusion clearly is so important today. It's just an everyday part of how hospitals run. You'll see blood drives at school. You'll see them down in the lobby where we work. It it really makes the book feel almost relevant that you hear this story of blood transfusion being so controversial, and now it is so everyday, so common. So we asked Holly if she got that sense while she was writing it, if there was something else in medicine and science that is comparable to blood transfusions in the 17th century, was there something that we could be missing today even? And this is what she had to say about that. I mentioned this um, in the epilogue of the book. Is I was working in the history of blood transfusion and trying to piece together what it all meant when in 2006 I knew I had to write this book. George Bush, in a State of the Union address, surprised, actually, the scientific community by calling for, and I'm quoting, legislation to prohibit the most egregious abuses of medical research, including creating human-animal hybrids. And I was deep enough into my research to know that that was precisely a fear that was surrounding blood transfusion. Of course, Bush was talking more about animal-human embryonic stem cell research, interspecies research, right? And he was basing that call for uh, legislative restrictions on a 2004 report from the President's Council on Bioethics that called for banning animal-human embryonic stem cell research to prevent, and again, I'm quoting, some adventurous or renegade researchers, end quote, from doing untold damage to the human species. And I thought, you know, that that was precisely what Jean-Baptiste Denis was seen as, was renegade. And that was precisely the, the, the concern is that blood transfusion would do extraordinary damage to what it, what, how we understood what it meant to be human. And that, that has always made me think, you know, we, do, we have to be careful not to give science this forward looking narrative of 
of triumph, right? Because science is all about fits and starts, successes and failures. But in the same case, um, I think that this, the history of blood transfusion really begs us to think about, you know, what that relationship between science and society is and how fraught it really is. And as we're looking at our own scientific revolution, I believe fully that we're in, in, in a moment of deep scientific revolution right now. What, how will history be judging us? What are some of the things that we were scared to move forward with that, um, would have ended up being clear successes and actually have benefited humanity? I can't imagine the number of lives that, of course, would have been lost as they could have continued blood transfusion. Um, but I also can't imagine all the lives that would have been saved if we'd been able to perfect blood transfusion much earlier than we did. Blood transfusion itself, the first blood banks weren't established until 1930, the 1930s, um, largely in response to the discovery in 1914 of sodium citrate, which prevents blood clotting. So blood transfusion is actually very, very recent science. And I have to wonder what's on our own scientific horizon that may seem very scary, but that actually could have um, an unbelievably strong impact historically on, on, on what it is we do and how we live our lives. Well, we really loved having the opportunity to do this interview because we get so jazzed about covering medical history. It really makes for some of the best stories that we ever get to tell. And we also love the history of France, of course. And this book is the perfect combo of those things. Tucker, in her career, combines French and history, just as she does in this book. And we're super jealous of that. Afterwards, that's pretty much all we could talk about. We were like, she has the best job. She gets to go to Paris, too. So, of course, we had to ask, how did that happen? And here's what she told us. You know, the best thing about being a college professor is you, you can have many careers in one. Um, and over a course of a lifetime, you can explore all different types of topics if you're lucky and if you land at a university that really supports that. So in my first iteration of my career, I worked in French history and culture and specifically in the time period that um, that I talked about in this book. But it was right at when I was doing my graduate work, it was right as interdisciplinary studies were just coming onto the landscape. So PhDs tended to be very traditional and very uh, subject focused. But I was also at the University of Wisconsin. Um, that's where I did my PhD, which has one of the best history of medicine and science programs in the United States. And uh, I ended up taking a good amount of courses just to take courses in the history of medicine and history of science. And once I landed in my faculty position, I, I really wanted to try to find ways to, to bridge what I was doing in French studies with my interests in history of medicine and science. And so my first book had nothing to do with my doctoral dissertation. It was on the history of embryology and childbirth and, and uh, a variety of cultural texts in the 17th century. And so blood work just seemed like the logical extension, right? As I get to talk about early France, get to talk about the culture and history of early France and also its science. So it's, for me, it's been a fantastic journey each, each time with each book. 
I, I get to explore a new set of questions. And it also, um, being a college professor is great for me because I'm a learning curve junkie. The steeper, the better. And the, the, the more learning curves there are, the better. So each book I, I do, I always try to find a topic I know very little about. So that's how you can get, that's how you can be a French professor and have an appointment in a center for medicine, health and society. So, I mean, you can see what we mean by this. I'm sure we're not the only ones who envy Holly Tucker's a career. Bit jealous. Yeah. Not lie. She gets to pair historical research with writing and teaching and kind of explore all the ideas that excite her. So that's awesome. Interesting note, though, I read in a different interview that she has a dog. And that she wrote the book, a lot of the book, while her pet dog was with her. And for, for anybody who is about to, to go out and read this book, dogs have a hard time of it, don't they? They do. They, some of the experiments performed on animals will kind of make you cringe if you're an animal lover, but. And experiments performed on people too. That's very true. It is definitely a different time. Uh, so just keep that in mind. But uh, speaking of the time it takes place, I do think that you guys are going to have a lot to say about this book, a lot of feedback, especially if you've listened to all those episodes we did toward the beginning of the year on the Bourbon family, because after all, this book does take place during the reign of Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King, and really has a lot to do with his consolidation of power, building Versailles, and and all of that. So I think you guys are going to have some feedback for sure on not just the medical aspect, but the political aspect, the rivalry, the class, and the people involved. And we would love to hear from you and get kind of a book discussion going. There's even a chapter in there called The Affair of the Poisons. There is, which should sound pretty familiar to you guys if you've been listening. So definitely look for us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at Mist in History, and we can start talking about Holly Tucker's blood work, A Tale of Medicine and Murder in the scientific revolution and of course if you guys have any suggestions i know that we were so inspired by this and we'll probably come up with tons of ideas for future podcasts and if you have any suggestions for those please send them our way as well in the meantime if you want to look up a little bit more about blood and blood circulation and other related topics you can find all kinds of information on our website about that just by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Work's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. 
Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way Is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.